I want to thank Jimmy Griffin for today's opening music. I think it's very fitting, so it's a good vibe. A lot of you probably know Jimmy from El Monstero, but if you haven't heard any of his original music, check out any of the Incurables albums. Check him out around town and when he's playing, if you're in St. Louis or on the road. Amazing guy, amazing musician. For today's episode, I spoke with David Carson. This is the first of two parts. David is a photojournalist with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And there's been a lot of turmoil that's been going on the last few years in our country. A lot of race relations, we're seeing all this. And the straw that broke this camel's back was Ferguson. Everybody has heard about this. Most of you have seen photos from the events, whether it be through the Post, whether it be on the Internet. And the coverage that the Post had had photographed, uh, what they had captured out there, their coverage won a Pulitzer Prize, which is which is a huge thing. There was a lot of national media covering it, but the local media, as David talks about, they covered it in a way that was really personal, yet fair and balanced. He'll talk about a little bit of that, covering both sides, covering uh, the side of the police, covering the side of the protesters. It's a great conversation. I met David through uh, the recommendation of Chris Lee, who photographs uh, a lot of sports around town on staff at the post and David was kind enough to speak in a class I was teaching at Lindenwood was blown away by what I heard he was the first news photojournalist that I had really talked to and he gave us a couple hours and I was fascinated by everything he had to say recently I was at a St. Louis Film Festival event and uh, the the whole photography staff of the post were showcasing some of the photos and talking about what they experienced talked a little bit with David afterwards once again I was blown away and said to him you have to you know, let's let's record a conversation because I want to share it with others. And here he is, David Carson. I'm proud to introduce you to him. Thank you for listening. Conversations with Calcaterra. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Ken. So a lot of people might not know your name, but uh, I'm sure they've seen your work not only in the St. Louis area, but now uh, now worldwide. Uh, tell us a little bit. I, the big thing that's happened recently, everyone knows uh, throughout the country and the world, is Ferguson. And that was something that was really big for you and, and the team that you work with at The Post. What was what was something that came out of that? Or how, how were you guys, when, when you went into that, you have this big event. Everything before that, I mean, we've had a lot of things happen. There's just a lot of, lot of crime in the city right now. Things are not great. But Going into a big situation like that, what was on your guys' mind? You know, um, I never would have thought that Ferguson would have become this internationally known event. Um, In the early, at the start of it, you know, it was a fatal officer-involved shooting uh, where a a police officer had shot and killed a 
um, a, a young a young man. I believe he was eighteen. Michael Brown was eighteen at the time. Uh, you know, was a recent uh, high school graduate. Um, it, this I don't mean to sound callous, but this was not a particularly unusual event in St. Louis. This is something I have covered, you know, multiple times before. Uh, we average about 10 to 12 fatal police officer involved shootings a year in St. Louis. So, you know, when I was out there and covering this, you know, I'm out there and, and it didn't look radically different to me than what some of the other ones were that I had covered. Um, what was different, what was going on, which was hard to see at the time, was everything that was happening on social media with this and how how it was, you know, gaining traction and, and picking up um, picking up steam. The you know, the, there was there was an angry there was an angry crowd there. Uh, they were angry at the police. Um and it didn't, but it did not look, this crowd, this angry crowd, I've seen other angry crowds. I've been in other tense situations between the police and the, uh, and the, and the, and the public, um, you know, including, you know, one of the pictures that really took off in Ferguson was, uh, a picture of the police using dogs to sort of control the crowd. The police will have come out and argued that, well, you know, we weren't using the dogs to control the crowd. And I was sort of like, eh what were the dogs out there for? Were they searching for narcotics? You know, it's like the, the, the dogs are being used to intimidate the crowd, but I'd been at other scenes like that where, you know, uh, other fatal police officer involved shootings where dogs were used, you know, to control the crowd and it was very tense. So, you know, I'd been in situations like this before, um, early on, uh, in the immediate moments after the police cleared the scene, for about five minutes, it was Michael Brown's uncle and I just standing at the scene. And he's a preacher, and he's standing, he's holding his hands up towards the sky, and he's, um, you know, he's praying for for his his nephew who's been shot and killed. Um, the streets are still wet uh, from the fire hoses, which were used to wash the blood off the scene. Um, you know, people people saw that, and they're like, they're trying to wash evidence away. They're trying to do that. It's like. Mm. No, if unfortunately I've been to a lot of homicide scenes and I've seen this before that you know the police uh, will call the fire department over to come and use their fire hoses to wash the blood off the street. Um, you know it's it's a biohazard. Uh, you know it's just they don't you don't want to leave a big pool of blood you know laying in the street. Where Michael Brown uh, had his fatal interaction with uh, Darren Wilson, uh, the the Ferguson police officer who shot him happened right in the middle of the street. It was right, literally, like Michael Brown's body's laying on the center stripe uh, along Canfield Drive there. Um, and it, and the graphic nature of it, you know, people don't see this a lot, but it was right out there in public. It, um, it was going slightly downhill, so the blood was flowing out from Michael Brown's body. Um, he had had a gunshot wound to the top of his head which is always going to bleed a lot and um people aren't used to seeing that a lot of times when someone's killed they they end up falling in grass or something else they don't really they they don't often see the blood and so um you know people were really outraged uh to see michael brown's body just laying there in, in the street and for a while it it was uncovered um it's unclear to me exactly how long it took them to cover it, uh, but eventually uh, 
I, I believe they got a, a white sheet from one of the uh, ambulance units um, and, and just used that to cover the body. But for a while, his body was out there in the street uncovered. Um, we started to talk about uh, social media creating the snowball effect and things, you know, starting to gain momentum going down downhill there. And uh, that was one of the things that was repeated again and, and again was, you know, this image of Michael Brown laying dead on the street you know, uncovered. He was covered, I think, within 20 or 25 minutes. Um, Ferguson, as a police uh, force, does not have the same resources that the city of St. Louis has. The city of St. Louis has so many homicides. Homicides are almost a daily occurrence in the city of St. Louis uh, that, you know, they carry screens up and they shield off bodies. They, you know, they protect the public from, from seeing that. And Ferguson just... They just don't have, they just don't have enough homicides to, I guess, carry that stuff around. Um, but it was really the community was really upset that Michael Brown's body was being left out, and that was one of the things that was really gaining traction on on social media uh, was this image of Michael Brown's body laying there in the street. Um, and I think that's one of the things with social media. You know that the city of St. Louis is better equipped, that Ferguson doesn't see as many homicides. Um, you know that we have so many municipalities in in this area. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of listeners um, throughout the country may not know that it's we're not fully equipped. Maybe with the county, maybe with the city. Well, definitely with the city. You've just said that. But we have these little municipalities that don't deal with this. And so that's the thing with social media. I find everything's so instant. And everything's really emotional. Maybe it should be like emotional media. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's just one of those things that it's all instant and, and people aren't really thinking. They're just, it's, it's very reactionary. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you continue to see uh, some people, Michael Brown's body ended up being out there for four hours. And when you, we actually did a story at the Post-Dispatch outlining like why this happens, how many, uh, Comparing this to other scenes, four hours was a long time, but we've we've covered scenes where bodies have been out on scenes for um, more than double that time. There was a now this one this one particularly irritated the public because it was right out literally right in the middle of the road. Um, some of the other ones we've covered where the bodies have lingered on the scenes longer. That you know the bodies have been in houses or in in more secluded areas that aren't as public. Um, so the people aren't aren't confronted with it for so long, but yeah, that, it's one of the things you continue to hear in the protests is that you know we're going to shut down this intersection for four and a half minutes as people lay down and, and block traffic for four and a half uh, for four minutes um, to symbolize the time Michael Brown's body laid on the street, and so that you can you continue to hear it in protests. You continue to hear it to be one of the things that people find outrageous about the shooting was that. Michael Brown's bodies laid out there for a longer period of time than they felt was justified. But, you know, if, if you look at it, it happened on a Saturday. You know, Ferguson is not going to investigate their own fatal police officer-involved shooting. They don't have the resources to do, to do it. It's not appropriate for them to do it. So Ferguson has to contact the county agency. The county agency on a Saturday only has one evidence technician crew on for that for that Saturday. And they were on something else, and so they had to clear the the scene prior to this to come and do the Ferguson scene. Um, 
there were, you know, the police report that there were gunshots. I've talked to people who are down on the scene who say, yes, there were gunshots. Um, I was not at the scene when the gunshots took place. But as the police were trying to investigate the scene, there was gunfire in the area. And so that that sort of slowed things down. Um, you know, it, there's a number of reasons why his body was out there for four hours, four, four plus hours. But, um, yeah, whatever the reason was that, you know, the community has a right to be upset about it. Um, but they, they should understand, you know, why, why this happens. You know, you should calmly look at what, why this happens. Um, but sometimes, you know, people just want to be upset. You know, it's upsetting when uh, an 18-year-old boy loses his life. You know, this, is, this was somebody's son. This is somebody's, um, you know, brother. You know, it, it's, you know, it's sad. It's tragic. Um, I, I think... I think when you look at the events that happened in Ferguson, it was they just it, things just spiraled out of control. Um, you know, it there's video of Michael Brown and Dorian Johnson um, at the Ferguson Market. Um, this is surveillance video, and it, it appears that Michael Brown is. Um, you know, roughing up a, uh, a, sh a store shopkeeper, you know, uh, you know, pushes him and, and Michael Brown walks out the door. There are radio calls from the police about this uh, robbery, which is taking place. And you can hear some police traffic of them looking for looking for these suspects. Um, Darren Wilson is down uh, down in the area working on a, on a separate call. I believe it was a child who was having a difficulty breathing. Uh, and he was down responding in that area on that, and he was clearing that call. And he saw um, Michael Brown and Dorian Johnson walking down the middle of the street. And Darren Wilson, you know, approached these guys and said, hey, you know, get a, stop walking down the middle of the street, you know, get on the sidewalk. Um. If you listen to Dorian Johnson's version of that, it, it is a less polite interaction. If you listen to Darren Wilson's uh, version of that, it's it's this very kind. Can you please step to the side of the street? I, I think you always have to kind of weigh like what what what's what's the truth. And if I had to guess, based on my past interactions with police officers, I bet that this was not the pleasant conversation, quite the pleasant conversation that Darren Wilson has portrayed, where he asked them to please step on the sidewalk. Um, so, you know, that, that, you know, that, that, con that, that interaction didn't get off to a good start. Darren Wilson then testifies or has testified to the grand jury that he thought that, um, he, he thought that, uh, Dorian Johnson and Michael Brown matched the, the description of, of these robbery suspects. And so he put his car in reverse, you know, but when he puts his car in reverse, he puts his car in reverse and backs over and cuts these guys off and comes so close to him that when he opens his door, he hits Michael Brown with his door. That and I, that was a tactical error on Michael on, on on Darren Wilson's part because Darren Wilson has gone on to testify. He's testified to the grand jury that he was so scared of of Michael Brown that Michael Brown he that, that he felt like a ragdoll being shook by Michael Brown that he that Michael Brown appeared huge to him. Michael Brown was bigger than Darren Wilson, but Darren Wilson is not a small gentleman. I think Darren Wilson's well over six feet. Um, you know, Michael Brown had some weight on him, but you know, these were not. These were not. This was not a huge mismatch. But Darren, Darren Wilson testifies that 
they're you know he's so worried about Michael Brown that you know that he felt like a, a rag doll, but yet he pulled his police car. He, he eliminated his advantage of distance and to give verbal orders, and he closed that. And so that was a mistake on Darren Wilson's part. When you talk about a series of mistakes cascading, this is this is where things are starting to cascade. You know, Darren Wilson also testified that if Dorian Johnson and Michael Brown had just gone to the sidewalk, he probably never would have given it a second thought. And so that. So that there's some like more things that are adding to the spiral, and then there's a confrontation at the car, and um, Dorian uh, or uh, Dorian Johnson has stepped back, but Michael Brown is, uh, you know, either pulled into the car or reaches into the car and has a confrontation with Darren Wilson. The Darren Wilson's gun comes out somehow. A shot is fired there at the car. It, the shot strikes Michael Brown in the wrist, goes into the door. There's I believe two shots fired there, one missed. Um, Michael Brown gets out and runs away uh, up the street um, and then and all, all of what I'm describing to you here is not something that I saw but that I'm basing this off of the grand jury testimony um, and uh, turns at some point and starts coming back towards uh, Officer Darren Wilson and Wilson uh, who has already fired two shots uh, fires more shots as Brown as Brown comes at him, whether he's running at him, walking at him, standing there. I, you know, the grand jury reports that he's coming towards Wilson. Um, that that he did, you know did not have his hands up. Um, that maybe his hands were raised, or like extended out towards Wilson. Which you know, if you read the autopsy reports, there's some you know confusion about where where those shots came from and stuff. But um, you know. When you have an interaction with a police officer, it is not a balanced interaction. It's always going to be tilted in their favor. Um, you know, they have guns. They have the authority of the law behind them. Um, so, you know, there was, you know, it was bad. It was, you know, there was bad decisions by Darren Wilson to, to eliminate that space. There was bad decisions by, by Michael Brown, you know, in, in, in confronting the officer. And you had these, this, this, downward spiral of bad decisions just you know coming together and unfortunately it, it ended with the death of this 18 year old uh, guy Michael Brown and that that's tragic and so you know the community has a right to be upset about that um, but you know what came out on social media we're talking about emotional media was what you read on on social media was is that Michael Brown died with his hands up uh-huh. you, you know surrendering to Darren Wilson and um I believe that's been pretty clearly proven not to be, not to be the case. Um, you know that that he wasn't surrendering, that he didn't die on his knees. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, with his hands up, surrendering. There's still one piece of video that makes me say, "Hmm," and that's video of these construction workers who are there digging trenches, uh, drainage trenches, and stuff. And they are just, they have just witnessed this from, from you know maybe a hundred yards away, and they are outraged at what they saw. Like, what did you shoot him for? Why did you do that? You didn't have to do that. So, that that's a pretty. These guys don't know they're being filmed. It, it was a pretty guttural reaction to what something they just saw. Um, but if you look, at, if you go back and you look at you know witness testimony, witness testimony is historically terrible. I mean, ten people see the same event and ten people view it differently. So, yeah, and a lot a lot of that is with perception. And when we talk about 
what we see on on the social media, mm-hmm. what little stories like the telephone game, we go through enough people, then the story completely changes. Right. As well as even with photographic evidence, because you're a photojournalist, so you're a lot of times experiencing this event, you're seeing things. You didn't see that particular point, but the fact that you went and looked at the evidence and you looked at it from an objective view is a good thing. And I think also as well as looking at photos, but one thing you've, you've said, I've heard you said, is talking about personal biases and not so much on yourself, although sometimes as a, a photographer, as a documentarian, a filmmaker that I am, we sometimes have our biases. But with the public looking at that, and I think with with right now we're dealing in our country with, with there's a lot of, I think it's a, a situation of lack of respect, lack of respect for for the public, to the police, and, and there's a lot of situations that have have really justified that uh, lack of respect um, for, for the police to the public. You know, we're looking at somewhat of a police state, or it's becoming that, where it's not so much protect and serve. It, it It's a little more, we're seeing a lot of these incidents with there's some of the bad seeds, because not every police officer is, is this, but we get that perception when we see one case. I think we're just too polarized in this country. And if I say that guy's not a good police officer, get him out of there. A lot of times people are going to say, well, you don't you don't support the police, which is, is the opposite case. So I think we're dealing with a lot of that. How, how do you feel those personal biases come into play, whether they're seeing one of your photographs and putting their personal experience into that or whether it is just through what they're hearing from different people? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. It was interesting being a photojournalist out there and working in Ferguson because you would you would shoot a picture and you would you'd put it out. You either publish it in the Post-Dispatch or online on STL Today or, or send it out on Twitter, and people would argue with you about it. Like, that's, I, you know, I, that's a lie. And it's like, no, really. Like, I, when I was out there and I was using Twitter to disseminate some of this stuff, I would try to use the plainest language possible to say like what I saw and then back up what I said with a picture and people would argue with me about it. And I'm just like, okay, you know, uh, you might be that those might be your biases, which are, um, which are leading you to believe that I'm, I'm full of it. Um, but I'm telling you, I'm out here in the scene. This is what I'm saying. I don't have a dog in this fight. Uh, it, it would be in- it was interesting to see how pictures were interpreted. The same picture was interpreted differently by the protester side and then by police officers. You know, there um, was a picture I shot of a St. Louis police officer, of a St. Louis County uh, tactical team uh, police officer firing a tear gas round. It's a, um, it's a, it's a very dramatic picture. Uh, you know, there's, there's a light coming down from a helicopter and there's blue blue and red siren lights going in the background and there's uh, tear gas hanging in the air around. He's actually firing a tear gas round. Um, And there's a big flame coming out of it, uh, out of of the end of the gun as he's firing this round. And protesters see that and they're like, see, that shows the militarization of police and what is wrong with this country and, you know, why, you know, why we need to rein these police officers in. But in, in... What's taking place in, in that photograph is is that the police had been out there uh, staying on West Flores and telling people to go home, and uh, someone fired uh, three three gunshots uh, in their direction, and then the police said, "Okay, we got to now we're going to clear now we're going to clear this out. You know, we're you know we can't just stand out here and take fire. We got to 
we got to remove we got to remove these people from the street and how do you remove you know several hundred people from the street quickly is tear gas and rubber bullets and flashbangs and so that that's what they did you know they deployed all those resources so police officers look at that picture and they're like see we are using non-lethal responses to potentially lethal force so you know we're justified in this so you had one picture and you had protesters looking at it one way and you had police officers looking at it the other way um and, and you know i i try to play things you know naturally everyone's gonna have biases I try to. I, I'm honestly making an effort to be as straightforward as I can with stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm always willing to to talk with people who say I'm biased for shooting some one thing or another. But um, I, I'm my job as a journalist is to try to be unbiased and be aware of what my biases are and try to tell it down the middle. So you know, and, and get to what the truth is. You know, because ultimately, as a journalist, you're interested in what the truth is. Um, and so you know. That was one of the interesting things in Ferguson was is that people would see your photograph and interpret it different ways based on their own biases and then accuse you of being biased one way or the other for for making that picture. Um, so it was, <laughs> yeah, it, it was fascinating. People don't, I mean, the other role that we had in, in, in Ferguson was working as a verifier of fact. Like these rumors would circulate on Twitter like, Oh my God! Police have executed Dorian Johnson behind the behind the dominoes on West Florence, and and so you know the the journalists in in Ferguson went down behind the dominoes and were like, no, there's no evidence of a crime scene here. And then you know a day later, you know, sure enough, Dorian Johnson was out walking along the streets of West Florence and you know giving interviews, and so like clearly you know he's not dead. But you continued to see that statement that Dorian Johnson, um, I believe, I don't believe they were calling him Dorian Johnson at the time. I believe it was called the guy who was with Mike Brown. Um, but you were continuing to see for weeks afterwards that police had executed this guy behind the dominoes. And it just, it, it wasn't true. But after it got out in social media, it had this life of its own. So it's, social media was is great for its ability to, Share information quickly, but you need to weigh the sources of that information and uh, monitor who you follow and be aware of who you retweet and stuff. Uh, because you know you don't you don't want to add you know bad information to a scene. Yeah, it's definitely adding fuel to the fire. Uh, and I think overall, from following it and, and talking with you and uh, the recent panel that you guys um, that the staff, the photography staff, and the editorial that you had um, participated in with the St. Louis Film Festival and, and seeing the photos, it was a good balance. And, and I know you had talked about you have done ride-alongs with uh, a lot of the officers. And then at, at times when Ferguson was going down, you had covered them. I mean, there was one great photo of the officers praying together. Mm-hmm. So that's a cool photo. And then it, there's, I thought you covered it well for, from what I've seen. Thanks. You know, I don't know how... How else you can do it? I right. mean, you're capturing pictures of what's going on, and right. then you let let the truth come out. Right. I, I often tell people, people ask me, well, what do you think about Ferguson? And I'm like, oh, you know, Ferguson is like an onion. It's just layer upon layer of, of stuff, and all these layers interact with each other in sort of weird ways. And like an onion, some of these layers stink. Um, but it is such a layered and complex series of events that happened out there. People are like, well, aren't you afraid of the protesters? It's like, no, you know, I there, there are there are people out there within the protests that that are concern me and I need to be aware of. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I had 
I yeah I had I uh, was threatened with a with a gun um, and, and assaulted by some people within the protest at various times. Um, had physical violence threatened on me as well as you know done to me uh, by protesters. And I was threatened with guns by police officers and threatened with arrest by police officers. So, you know, the guys who did it, I did not think were particularly justified. You know, I didn't think the protesters who, you know, did their, you know, their their bad actions to me were justified in their actions. I didn't feel that the police officers who did, you know, you know, who pointed guns at me and threatened me with arrest were justified in their actions. But, you know, I also ran into some very helpful, you know, police officers who, you know, saved my ass at a time there. But I also ran into protesters who saved my ass at a time. So there was one night where the police had just dropped the hammer uh, and, and just let go all these rounds of tear gas and and flashbangs and there's firing rubber bullets. And I just ran back into this neighborhood and I had a gas mask on and a, and a, and a, bullet, and a ballistic helmet and a, and a bulletproof vest. And there's this family was kind of watching watching this uh, from their porch. And I kind of went up to them and I scared them to death. <laughs> but I all I wanted was to get out was to get out of the tear gas, just to get away from this. And so they, I, I was walking up there like whoa 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 get away! And I'm like oh sorry. And I take off the mask and I hold up my ID. I'm like ah, I work for the Post Dispatch. <laughs> like can I can I just come in? They're like oh sure. And then you know and they gave me some water and they let me use their wi-fi to send pictures i mean they're they're very helpful and i've gone back in and i've checked in with them and stuff um just a, a very nice family um you know i had a preacher you know when i when i uh, made the one picture of the i heard the quick trip was being burnt on the first night of the of the uh when the when the protest turned violent and i went down and i stood outside the quick trip i was like i couldn't really see any smoke but i, I saw these two large groups of, that had gathered and these, these, they see me taking pictures, and they go, hey, he's taking pictures. Get him. Kick his ass. And I was like, oh, no. And I turned, I just started running towards a line of police that were about a quarter mile away up West Florissant. And I don't really run fast as it is normally, but I run even slower when I have two cameras and a computer book bag and a body armor and a helmet and a gas mask strapped to my leg. And so, you know, a couple of these guys caught me, and he started off by hitting me in the head. Um, fortunately I had a helmet on it, but it, that knocked me to the ground. And this preacher I had interviewed about 10 minutes before came running up and was like, leave him alone, leave him alone, leave him alone. And, you know, that gave me just enough time to get to my feet and, and get away. You know, if it hadn't been for that preacher, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I would have been able to continue to work there. You know, maybe I would have gotten a worse beating, but yeah, you know, you gotta, when you're out there and you're in these dynamic situations, you can't make generalizations or assumptions about people. You have to base your interactions on what what their actions are towards you. And I think when we look at this, it's never black and white. And I'd say that not skin color, but we look at the spectrum. There's so much, if we look at a gradient, there, there's so many, like you said, with the layers, but it's there's so many shades of gray. Shades of gray. Yes, yes. And, and I think, in, in, as I said, with the polarization, we're, we're not, we're looking one thing or the other and not looking at that shade of gray. We're not looking at how how long these police officers were out there were looking at fatigue. They're human as well. It's a, it's a scary situation. I mean, I have a lot of friends and family members that are police officers, so I can associate with that side. And then I also can associate with, with the side of protesters because I think it's important that we have people protesting in this day and age because there's just a lot it, it's very it's very skewed there's a lot of people that are taking advantage and, and i think you need that balance 
and it's so hard to say to lump protesters in as a group because that, that is such a layered and 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 diverse group of yeah. of people with different agendas. There are well, I think you have troublemakers. I think we have yeah. to not just right. you know. I, I I think that's another label. I, I won't right. use the term thugs, but the troublemakers. You have the people that want to cause trouble. That that's that's what gives them their you know that high or whatnot. And you you have that whether it's out in Ferguson, whether it's a person in in your family that's just gonna right. you know just kind of poke 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 right. and, and try to get a reaction. So there were all these different layers of protesters during the day. There were there were people who would be out and protesting and holding signs uh-huh. and and sort of chanting and 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 there would be kids and and. And children out there, and then as it got dark, the protests, you know, the, the the makeup of the people protesting would sort of start to change, and you know, things would start to be thrown at the police. It would turn a little bit more violent. Uh, the rhetoric that was being, you know, used w- w- would be uh, uh, would be different than what was being used during the day. Um, you know, there were some awful things uh, said to the police by 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 some of the people who were out at the protest. Um, but, you know, when you start to get into this and you start to look at it, you know, people say, you know, well, why didn't you cover this beforehand? And it's like, oh, my God, we, we've been covering these issues for as long as I've been at the Post-Dispatch. Ten, 11 years before Ferguson ever happened, we did this major investigation into the local policing in St. Louis. Uh, the, the series was a three-day series called Law and Disorder. And one of the things we specifically looked at was municipalities using their populations as an ATM to, to take money out of through fines, yeah. through, through police, uh, through police ticketing and stuff. Collect and, and serve. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to protect and serve, collect and serve. And, and then people, you know, wouldn't have the money to pay these, pay these fines. And so they would get warrants issued for their arrest, you know, cause they couldn't pay and they wouldn't show up to court. So you have all these people around St. Louis, you know, walking around with warrants and if you looked at the towns where this was mostly happening, these were mostly happening to black residents in, in, in towns. And uh, these, it wasn't like this was happening in Ladue or Town and Country or Clayton. This was a this was usually a North a North St. Louis County phenomenon. Um, and so, you know, you're seeing changes now uh, be, because of that. Um, you know, it, it's you know. The shooting of Michael Brown was the straw that broke the camel's back, and it became, uh, you know, after the after 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 the floodgates were open and all this emotion was flowing, all this other stuff started to come out there. Um, the, it was interesting, you know, in the first two weeks after Michael Brown was shot, the protest was not particularly racially driven. There was some discussion of, of black and white, but it. Black, you did not see any conversation about Black Lives Matter until I, I think I feel like you did not see a lot of that until September, October, November. I can't remember exactly when you started to see that creep into you know become part of the conversation. But in the first two weeks, it was mostly about policing um, and how how are these police policing their, the the community? Um, and there was there was always some racial element to it. But it wasn't centered, and I think the further we've gotten away from the shooting of Michael Brown, the more the conversation has started to revolve around race, and so that that has been an interesting transformation to watch. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think you have to look back into the history of it all when we go back, and then how can we fix it? Because just complaining or saying, you know, throwing out something along the lines, "All lives matter," and I get it, all lives do matter, but when you're throwing it out it, as a reaction 
to somebody saying, hey, you know, I matter too. Here's the issue I have. I mean, granted, are we, I think in this country, we're getting a little too sensitive. You know, something I heard on the radio with, on colleges when you look at, at Mizzou. And I, I think, oh, what was the term? It was micro something. We'll say micro abrasions. Microaggressions. Microaggressions. And it was little things. I heard it on, on Mark Reardon's show on Camo X. And it was, they were interviewing people. And it was like, if you ask someone that is Asian where they're from, is that a microaggression? Yes. And it's like getting to the point where, you know, I, I want to know where somebody's from because just because you're Asian, there's a lot of different countries. There's a lot of different cultures. So we're getting getting to that point. But I think looking at this issue, there are some real concerns. And then when, when somebody throws something out as a reactionary thing or, or why is the whiz, you know, why are there no white cast members in the right. whiz? And then it's getting sensitive on the other side. Well, you're saying this, so I'm going to say this. And it's like, come on, people. But it's that's just, that polarization. Yeah, you know, but, it's crazy. But Like where people, you know, it's either you're either a hero or a villain. Yeah. You know? And I, I, I thought when I first heard when I first heard the Black Lives Matter thing, uh, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if that's right. And but you know, that that becomes exclusionary. But I've done some more reading on it and stuff. And one of the best things I, I thought that helped me understand it was, if you remember back in the 80s, uh, there was a movement, Save the Rainforest. And uh, th- this was actually, um, I'm trying to remember what his name is. There was an actor in Hollywood that put out put this out in a tweet. But this movement was Save the Rainforest. But Save the Rainforest didn't mean screw the Redwood Forest. It didn't mean screw all other forests. It just meant, <laughs> you know, we're trying to, we have a problem here with the rainforest. And I think that, when you hear people say Black Lives Matter, they're trying to highlight that there's a crisis going on in their community and and, and that they want you to hear them. And part of the magic, part of the magic, I think, of Black Lives Matter is, is that someone responds, all lives matter, and, and, and they get very indignant about it. And it's like, oh, well, that's interesting because, you know, I bet you three months ago, you wouldn't have said all lives matter. And so I think that's one of the magic responses. Black Lives Matter is such a classic form of antagon, uh, of agitation. Um, and I think it works so well because people are then like, no, all lives matter. And I was like, oh, well, that's progress because you may not have said my life mattered a while no. ago. No one ever says that. Um, but I always think that that's one of the magics uh, parts of Black Lives Matter is, is that people's response to that is all lives matter. And it's like, you, they may not have admitted that before. Yeah, so, yeah. And, um, and I agree. Blue lives matter. So if you look at the, the the policing, you know everybody does. We have to figure out a way to work together to compromise to to not be polarized. I mean, that's I think the, that'll be our our term of the day: polarization. But but to find that that gray to come in in the middle. I mean, we just don't see a lot of moderates in this day and age. It's either one side or the other, and it just keeps. It keeps getting further apart. Hopefully that pendulum's swinging back and we're going to get towards the middle and we'll start improving these things. Because is it an issue? I mean, you cover this all the time. Yes, there is a lot of black on black crime, a lot of in a lot of poor areas. And maybe it's more of a socioeconomic thing. Maybe it's I think it's really an educational thing. Because and, and it's one of those terms, and we'll get back to photojournalism in a minute, but since I've opened this can, it's one of those things. And yeah, the family is important for education, but if the family has not been educated and doesn't understand education or how to do that, then how do you carry that on? You don't understand it. And so I think these are issues that we need to figure out what can we correct, and whether it's, it's education or whatnot. But it's something that that has to be done. Otherwise, we're going to keep going down this way, and you're going to have to go 
photograph murders every day, and I, I just think, yeah, I don't, I don't want to see that in this area. You know, I, I wish or anywhere. That, I wish there was an easy solution to that, and there's, there's no easy solutions to this. There, the complex the, the issues are so complex and so intertwined with each other that trying to, you can't just un, unravel you know, a single strand and, and think that that's going to be the panacea that fixes it all. It, you know, I, I and other reporters have talked, you know, we, we've been driving off to homicide scenes and, and you're, we're talking, why does this keep happening? How we do? And it's just, it's overwhelming. Like, you don't know what the solution is. You know, people that are far smarter than me have tried to tackle this problem and have not come up with a solution. So um, I wish I knew what the solution was. I, I wish... I wish someone smarter than me could come up with a solution to this, but um, the one thing I am encouraged by is that, you know, there are conversations taking place about this, um, and it's good that the conversations are taking place. Now we just need to start listening to each other on both sides and hearing what the other person is saying. Um you know, and hopefully we'll we'll find some middle ground, you know, to move forward, you know, to, for the betterment of everybody. As a photojournalist, you go out and you take pictures. But I think one thing that a lot of people maybe don't understand or see is that you're also, with captions, you're also interviewing people to capture the full story to support that photo or the photo supporting the story that you've you've gathered. You know, Tell me a little bit about your, your writing captions and how important that is and, and how those help support the story and, and paint the whole picture. You know, I, I try to write a caption that that best you know that helps you see the picture in a new way or not in you know explain what you're what you're viewing there provide the context because a picture without a caption to me is just open to too much interpretation and i think really think uh the captions are very important a lot of times if i have a picture that i think is really important and and i don't want people to misrepresent it i will when I put it on Twitter, I'll put it on Twitter with the caption embedded within the within the frame, so that 
you know, if someone's going to take my picture and misrepresent it, they're going to have to make an extra step of detaching that caption. Um, but, you know, yeah, you're right. When I'm out there on scenes, I, you know, I'm working with all the tools I have. I'm using my notebook to talk to people. I Sometimes I talk to people on video. I use a camera. I, you know, I, I kind of do whatever I think is going to tell the story best. Um, it's hard for me to predict, you know, what that's going to be. But, um, uh, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, how did you decide to do this? And how did you decide that? I'm like, I just did what felt right. You know, when, when I'm out there and doing it, I, you know, I think I frustrate my bosses a little bit because they're like, they'll tell me, oh, you know, do some video. I'm like, ah, oh, leave me alone. Don't, don't, I don't want to do video on that. But then I'll see something I'm like, oh, I want to do video on this. And yeah. I can't tell you what it is I'm going to want to do video on until I'm actually in it. So, um, yeah, captions are very important. Yeah, one thing looking at, we look at uh, showing things. So you have the caption to support it. Also, the angle that you show. And one thing, I don't know if this was one of your photos or one thing we talked about. You visited a class I was teaching, and it was a photo of a gentleman outside of maybe the courthouse with, with a flag. And, and some lady was either pulling the flag from him. And so th that was one great example that you told the students. Right. And tell, tell tell the audience a little bit about that one. You so, you know it better than right. I. Right. So what was going on was it was after the Rams game and uh, of a group of Ferguson protesters uh, came down and stood outside of the uh, uh, Rams. One of the entrances where the Rams fans would be flowing out of after the game. And, and they're, cha they're chanting, you know, uh, this, is, this is before the grand jury announcement had come down. So they're chanting, indict convict send the killer cops to jail the whole damn system is guilty as hell it, it, it's funny because you know these chants they would get stuck <laughs> in your head i mean they're, they're very catchy chants um and so they were and they're waving a flag uh, and this flag is mounted upside down which is a symbol for distress um and so you have some of the rams fans coming out of the game and you know some of the fans have had some have had some beers and enjoyed it and enjoyed themselves during the game and um the Rams, I think, lost that day, and so the fans weren't particularly <laughs> happy. And and then they come out of the game, and there's these protesters, you know, out there chanting. And it wasn't a large group of protesters; it was maybe twenty, twenty-five people out there protesting. And within this group of protesters, there were some young kids, and you know, there were some adults. But um, so, of course, you know, the Rams fans get out there and they start having some conflict with some of the uh, with some of the protesters are out there, and and. Somebody, sp somebody spits on somebody. What I saw was that a Rams fan spit on one of the protesters, which started this this melee. Um, I've heard reverse that uh, that a protester spit on a Rams fan. I saw that later. I saw that later in the. I saw that later. But the initial spit that I saw was a a fan spitting on a protester. So that started this melee and there's all this confusion. There was only one police officer down there at this time. And he's trying to separate the two sides and he's, he's barely got control of the situation. Um, <clears throat> and eventually, you know, he gets them separated there. And the, this woman, Gina, who had photographed on multiple occasions before is staying there with her upside down flag. And she's just kind of yelling. And another, this Rams fan comes up uh, from the side of her and grabs the flag and runs off with her flag. So t steals the flag from her and starts running away, antagonizing them, yelling. Uh, I'm not sure what he was yelling, but he was running around antagonizing the protesters with this flag, and the protesters are chasing him. And so I, you know, I photographed this entire interaction. Um, 
there's there's one photograph that we ran in the paper um, uh, that that shows this flag being taken back from 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 this guy, and it looks like this guy's being hit with the flag. He's he's really just kind of backing away from it there. Um, and people saw this, and they're like, "Oh, the protesters are hitting this." And it's important to note here that you know the protesters uh, who are taking back the flag are mostly black, and the the Rams fan is a, is a white Rams, is a white male Rams fan. Um, and they're like, "Oh, the the protesters are hitting this hitting this man with an American flag. How awful!" And really, they're taking back the the flag from they're reclaiming this flag. And so we ran this picture in the paper, and. We ran it with a caption that provided you with a little bit. It was a, provided a little bit of dissonance with what you saw. We said, you know, ran, uh, protesters reclaim a flag that was stolen by uh, by a by a Rams fan. You know, and you know after the game, and so I was okay with that with what you were seeing and with that caption having some dissonance with each other because what happened out there was confusing and messy and it wasn't. You know, nobody held the moral high ground there uh, at all. I mean, there was there were protesters uh, um, who punched a woman in the eye. Um, there were you know, protesters who stole flags. Uh, there were protesters who there were protesters who got spit on by some of the, by, by some of the Rams fans, and then one of the protesters spit back in the face of one of the Rams fans, and so there was really there. As soon as you thought one side had the moral high ground and were like you know being wronged, some bad action would come back. I you know you know some action would would happen. You're like, all right, well now you're both in the wrong. Um, and so you know why I liked that particular photo with that caption was is that it the dissonance reflected the confusion of the situation that was out there. Um, so we ended up choosing. It, it's funny. We ran a series of pictures from that event online. Even though we ran that one picture in the paper, we ended up using a different picture in our Pulitzer Prize winning entry where the two people were fighting over the flag. Um, you know, you're making a lot of decisions in daily newspapers about which is the right photo to run and, and why and stuff. I, I still stand by our decision to run that one photograph there. But this other photograph has really grown on me in its value and symbolizing what, what took place there because you have a, a black protester on one side trying to take back her flag and a, and a, and a white protester on the other side trying to, trying to take it, and they're, they're fighting over the flag. And, boy, like, how, how American is that? Um, and for me as a kid, I grew up in Boston, and Stanley Foreman made a picture uh, during the busing uh, strife in Boston of a, of a white guy trying to stab a black guy with a flag. And as soon as I made this picture, I thought of this, these pictures that Stanley Foreman had made. And um, a few other people made that connection as well. And so that made me really happy. But um, that, the picture that we ended up entering in the, Pul in, in the Pulitzer entry was of this fight, you know, the, the struggle, you know, who's, you know, who's going to have control of America. It became symbolic of who's going to have control of America. Um, and, you know, maybe if I had to make the decision again in the paper, I, I would pick a different photograph, but I still like the one we ran in the paper for that reason that it created this visual dissonance. So. And at the time, what, what you're feeling at the time, as you learn more, things change. And then you think, oh, maybe this one would be better. But I, I think, Going with instincts is is the best. Where can I? I know you guys have an ebook online, correct? With the Ferguson photos, mm -hmm. we do have an ebook online. There is a gallery of photos on STL Today. Uh, I think if you go to Multimedia, 
uh, I, I should, we should have a better, easier to find web address for this. Yeah. I, if you go to stltoday.com uh, slash Ferguson, I think you'll get there. Oh,